Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Gary Hoover. Gary brings some 40 plus years of business experience to this interview. You're gonna hear about a lot of things, from his early days as an analyst on Wall Street, to founding, listing, and selling pubcos, and on to his board participation with some well-known companies. There are a few times I shook my head in astonishment from Gary's business experience. If you think you're living through a hell with your company and share price, wait until you hear about him leading a public company during the dot-com bomb. Gary's a prolific reader and historian. He has a collection of over 57,000 books and recites facts and figures with ease. He's now leading the American Business History Center. The website alone is worth bookmarking. Researching and interviewing Gary opened up my eyes and reignited my interest in the history of companies that have come and gone. This is a great opportunity to hear perspectives of a man who's led companies through thick and thin. I'm sure you'll enjoy. On the line, I have Gary Hoover. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Corey. Great to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, I've been very much looking forward to this. Uh, you've got some 40 years of experience from Wall Street uh, through so many different angles of, of business to, uh, to some board positions with some very interesting companies to the, the business history you focus on now. But I think what I'd most like to do to start off with is uh, an elevator pitch or uh, a summary about, uh, about who Gary Hoover is. Okay, I'll try to make it quick because I have uh, seen a lot and tried to do a lot. So I grew up in a General Motors factory town, Anderson, Indiana, and it was a town of 60,000 people, 27,000 worked at General Motors. And I'd ask my teachers, what can you tell me about General Motors? And they said, well, they make Chevrolet, Cadillac, Buick, Oldsmobile, Pontiac. And I said, no, no, no. Who, who started it? Why did they start it? Uh, who runs it today? Are they smart? Are they not? And nobody had the answers. So at the age of 12, I started subscribing to Fortune magazine, which had at least some of the answers. And then the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and all that. So I've had a, oh gosh, whatever that works out to 56 years, I've been reading Fortune and studying business. Uh, worked for three great big companies, uh, started nine of my own, if you count little ones in college, and have been fascinated by business all my life. And I teach and speak and write and blog and all that jazz. Excellent, Gary. I mean, it's, it's what, what caught me, in fact, why I reached out was uh, I read in uh, a LinkedIn headline of yours, uh, you being a business historian. And, you know, with this, with this amount of experience, there's got to be some tremendous stories and, and experiences you've had that are applicable to CEOs and management teams of today. When you look at that, that experience, for example, of reading Fortune for some 50 years, what, what do you take away from that? When you see companies, what is the differentiators there? What makes one stand out from the next? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, for one thing, um, I don't read the magazines as closely as I used to because I find it's the same stories over and over. I'm guessing there's only, I don't know, 15 or 20 different business stories. It's like seeing a play uh, uh, with different actors, you know? There's always, oh, young company, great idea, it's taking off, it's gonna change the world. Uh, and, th and then if you wait five years or 10 years, nobody's heard of that company anymore, or it is, it's Apple or whatever, you know? The uh, journalists are maybe right, 50-50% of the time, or, you know, old company dying. And um, so the, the basic themes don't really change. And when you study what makes companies great, you see the same things over and over, uh, several factors, but above all else, an absolute obsession with the customer. 
and how can you make somebody's life better? And when companies lose that, I mean, the greatest cause of failure is success. Uh, the goes to their head, the ego. They get caught up in their internal politics. They begin to use lots of internal jargon and have their own language. Um, they aren't looking outside. And, and there's also a tendency in large companies for people to get caught up in the deal. Of course, there are a lot of people that love negotiating and love deals. I recently saw an interview with Warren Buffett where he essentially said he hated negotiating. He didn't believe in it. He laid down his price uh, to buy or to sell. And why talk about it? You know, either take it or leave it. Uh, but he also talked about how some people just love the back and forth. Um, people build great companies tend not to be into all that, you know. Uh, some of the greatest companies have made almost no acquisitions. They've done what they do right. They get bigger and bigger. You take a company like UPS, one of the greatest companies in the world, and it's pretty much a straight line from the uh, Jim Casey that started it when he was 19 years old, borrowing $100. Now, it's a bigger, more diverse company, but it's really done it through what people would call organic growth and focusing on doing what they do well, doing one thing or a short list of related things over and over again very well. No, Gary, when you, when you mention that, there's, you make a point of some more kind of anecdotal or um, uh, subjective points there. But you also have career experience on Wall Street being a retail analyst. Yep. and uh, a corporate analyst. How did you mix the difference between the quantitative and the qualitative analysis back then? And, and has that changed for you over the years? Oh, boy, that's an interesting question. Well, I'm, I'm a data junkie. I love numbers. I love spreadsheets. I love making projections. I love trying to analyze companies pouring over their you know, 10Ks and annual reports and all the data you can get your hands on. But I think the key to all that data is humanizing it. Um, oh, an example, a story I'll tell if I can. Um, I started the first chain, my friends and I started the first chain of giant bookstores in the United States. And when it was seven years old, we were bought out by Barnes & Noble. And it's how they got into the giant bookstore business, much like Chapters and Indigo in Canada. And uh, the biggest company, there were two old players, Walden Books and B. Dalton, and they were both good companies. They, the v venture capitalists wouldn't touch my idea because they said, well, you can never catch Dalton and Walden. They're doing $500 million a year apiece, whatever, and you're nobody. You don't even have one story open yet. And the um, B. Dalton people, their, their stores competing with Walden B. Dalton carried maybe twice as many different books as a Walden store. Both companies were in every enclosed shopping mall in America, essentially. And the customers would walk into the mall, and they'd go to the first bookstore they came to and say, do you have this? And if they were in a Walden, half the time the Walden would say no. And then they'd go to the other mall bookstore, and that was Dalton. And Dalton much more often would say yes. If they walked into the Dalton first, they'd buy it there. So Dalton carried more books, and I had done enough analysis. Just stand out in front of bookstores and watch. See how many people are going through there, how long they stay there. I used to keep tablets and watch. I did this with my own stores to see average length of stay. And I knew, and you could also look at Wall Street reports and stuff, I knew the average Dalton did a lot more business than the average Walden. Well, then in my research in the bookstore business, I talked to every stranger I met, airplane uh, seats, parties, everywhere. Where do you buy books? Why do you buy them there? What bookstore do you like best? Da, 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 da. And the customers did not consciously perceive the difference between Dalton and Walden. Nobody ever said, oh, Dalton carries a lot more books. They just knew. I went to the mall and I found a book. Well, later, B. Dalton, which had been a growth company, it was part of Dayton Hudson that morphed into Target Corporation. And it was a great company. And, but then it, it matured. Its growth slowed. It's just a natural progression. But, of course, the management was trying to make it grow faster than it organically could. And they brought in new management. New management did a national survey. 
And they asked people, and essentially somewhere in the survey, does Dalton or Walden have more titles? Well, the customer didn't know. And they got back the answer, no, customer doesn't even know about that. So what did Dalton management do? They slashed their inventory <laughs> and they hmm. destroyed their whole competitive advantage because they saw numbers without understanding the business, without understanding customers. And later, Barnes & Noble bought B. Dalton for $300 million, ended up later writing off the $300 million, closing the entire chain. They bought our company for $41 million and we were the future and that's what the Barnes & Noble, they took that and run with that. They ran with that. They made a lot of improvements and everything. But it, So there was a case of, hey, study the numbers, but behind every number is a person. And um, how do you get inside their heads? How do you put yourself in the customer's shoes and, and the employee's shoes and your vendor's shoes? I mean, that's, to me, one of the great challenges for any entrepreneur or business leader. That's so interesting. I mean, I think about, well, nowadays, the complexities of uh, analysts and how far they'll go into diving into the numbers when you can get down to the basics. It's just so simple. It's not rocket science. And those qualitative approaches, those, well, and it would be quantitative as well when you're standing out front looking at the people enter and start to draw valid conclusions just from that practice. I mean, it's not yeah, it's a, science, but powerful. it's a blend of both. And I, I hear, I don't, I haven't worked on wall street since 1975, but I worked for Citibank, the big bank, and we were a big um, investment management operation. They used to call it a trust department. And our bosses were always on our case to spend more on travel, get out in the field, talk to the competition, uh, Hewlett-Packard had just introduced uh, calculators, and the analyst that covered Hewlett-Packard, one of our big stocks, uh, he was out talking to the sales clerks all over America. Um, a friend of mine covered the brewing industry, and the public companies were Anheuser-Busch, Schlitz, and Pabst. A big private company at that point was Coors out of uh, Colorado. And so my friend spent more time with the head of Coors because that guy was free to talk. He would tell all these tales on the other companies because, and no other analysts would go visit with him because his company wasn't public. I get the sense that today analysts are much more likely to think that they can sit there with um, Hoover's.com, for example, or their Bloomberg terminal and all this enormous amount of data and chatter that rolls across the internet and do all their analysis from behind the desk. If, if that is in fact true, um, I could beat them. <laughs> Fascinating, yeah. It's, well, that, that, you bring me to the next question I wanted to, to ask. And that's your passion for business information took you into creating Hoover's, which was uh, bought out by Dun & Bradstreet. But yep. you also took that public in July 1999, I believe. And so that would have been the run-up of the, the, the first dot-com bomb, as you will. You've got to have some fascinating stories around there. Uh, absolutely. That was a real roller coaster. I had started a company called The Reference Press, and our goal was to be the Webster's of business information. And we created a $20 book that had a profile of 542 most important companies in the world. And it was a great book, but it sold okay. And one of my old college buddies, uh, Patrick Spain, said, well, you know, we should go uh, online or on the Internet. And we're all like, well, what's that? This was, um, we started in 1990. And he had been an attorney and used a service called Lexus and Nexus. And um, the lawyers, who are not always very cost efficient, they were paying a dollar a page to get the same data, uh, we licensed it to Lexus and Nexus, a big legal information service. And so they were paying a dollar a page. I think we were getting a dime or whatever every time they did that. And we're like, hey, you can buy the whole thing, all 540 for, you know, 1995 at your local bookstore. And so uh, I, I got the point. I said, well, Patrick, do you want to run the company? Uh, he took it over. I served as chairman and stayed on the board for a while, for a long time on the board and uh, renamed the company Hoover's because our first book was called Hoover's Handbook. That was easier to 
trademark and protect and all that jazz. And uh, then the company was renamed Hoover's. I was no longer CEO. Uh, and then finally, by 1999, we were primarily online. Uh, we were still making the books, but that was a small part of the business. And um, went public at about $15 a share. Uh, the next day or two, it was 30 The world looked bright. Uh, a lot of, you know, when you're sitting in the board meeting and you're talking about going public, I don't care what anybody says. Everybody at that board meeting, every executive, every person in the company that had stock or stock options, they're penciling, oh, what kind of boat could I buy or house or car? I mean, it's human nature. So, you know, our eyes are filled with stars. That stock, uh, 30. And then when the crash came within a year or two, uh, in intraday trading, didn't close at this level. It hit 62 cents a share because the world decided all these internet companies are worthless. And then in 2003, it sold to Dun & Bradstreet for, I think it was $7 a share. Um, so yeah, you talk about a roller coaster. And I had borrowed, like I forget, a dollar a share against uh, my stock uh, for my next venture. So I had... I try not to remember the number, but it was a hundred or two hundred thousand shares called away from me on a margin call when it hit that sixty-two cents. So wow. when Hoover sold for one hundred and seventeen million dollars, I got sixty thousand dollars, all of which I owed to other people. So yeah, that was a that was a joy ride. That's a roller coaster, no kidding. And when when looking at that, and you know, I'll reflect on, for example, CEOs who are running small cap companies. And I mean, that's a roller coaster in itself when you don't have a perfectly established business model and you're working to, to oh, yeah. hit, hit your milestones. And what advice do you have? Is there a way to communicate with the market? Is there, how do you keep your people in line? I mean, especially when you're, you're rocketing up like that, you can think about people in the cannabis space right now and they're riding that roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, well, they're riding it up and hopefully they don't see it so far down from $30 to 62 cents. But what advice do you have for, for CEOs who perhaps are in that position? Well, you know, I think uh, at least two sides. One is your people, your employees, associates. And so I'm, I've always been a believer in stock options, and we tried to give stock or options to every employee when I could, when my investors would let me. Um, and so, but how do you keep their dreams under control and keep them focused on, look, we're trying to build a great company here and we're trying to do great things and that stock will go up and down. And, uh, you know, you basically don't want everybody running for the door, you know, when the, as soon as they can sell their stock or when the stock goes down. So how do you build that kind of culture and climate internally? But for, uh, at least for me, and I think a lot of people, the biggest issue is dealing with your investors because you've raised money. If you're like me at times, you were desperate for money and whoever had money, you took the check. And I now counsel people, man, really study your potential investors. And if you can get the freedom and flexibility to do it, uh, pick those investors, find ones that share your goals Find ones that have the same horizon that you do. You know, there are people, they want to get out in two years. There are people that want to be out in five years. Uh, venture capitalists have got these partnerships, so they're on a clock, whatever it is, five years, seven years, that they've got to realize return. And that's one reason I prefer angel investors. In my experience, you can find angel investors who are willing to hang in there with you, who, hey, if it takes 10 years, it takes 10 years. Um, maybe not a lot of them, but hey, they exist because they're investing for their kids and their grandkids. But managing those investors and those expectations, because knowing when to sell out to another company, when to go public, should we keep it private? And of course, today, all I have to do is read the um, financial publications to see all the controversies around the Uber IPO and the Lyft IPO and did Uber screw it up and are their investment bankers giving them bad advice and 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 the other thing is I, I don't have a problem with investment bankers they're some of the smartest people I've met but it's in their vested interest to do deals to buy other companies uh, to go public if you sit there and just grow internally and build a great great company um, there's 
no need for <laughs> investment bankers. So you really have to have your own mind and be an independent thinker and, uh, and, and focus on what you're trying to do. Focus on building a great business. If you do that, it's going to be worth more. And I don't care if you sell it, if you keep it, and you do dividends, if you go public, you want to build an enterprise that's worth something. I, 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 lots of questions are coming from, from the points you make there. And uh, I'm going to jump on the one that's what's top of mind right now. And that's your experience with investment bankers. There's no doubt they're an incredibly driven and intelligent bunch. But sometimes they get a bad rap. And there is a, a time and a place for a good banking relationship. But why or how, how is it best to engage bankers? And what should you be aware of or aware, uh, cautious of when, when doing so? You know, I don't think I have any real specific tips. I mean, like hiring anybody, uh, call around, uh, get their references. If you want to be tough, I remember when one venture capital firm uh, was talking about investing in us. And of course, I had to give them references and all this. And they said, give me names of three people that don't like you. <laughs> you know, So that's uh, kind of going out there pretty far. But, um, you know, they're, they're going to have a reputation in the business. Have they um, underwritten or worked with companies of your size in your industry, uh, of your mindset? I mean, you know, we have way too many companies these days that are built to flip. You know, I see entrepreneurs come to me with pitches and business plans. I, I judge a lot of those pitch competitions and all that jazz. And, you know, half the time they're like, well, our goal is to sell this to so-and-so in three years. And I'm like, well, why are you getting into it if you want out of it? You know, but if, if that is your mindset, find investment bankers that like that mindset. Um, you know, the people that built Google and Apple and Amazon, they didn't, didn't say, oh man, can't wait to sell this thing, you know, and then finally do what I want to do with my life. <laughs> Get out of this nonsense. Uh, I hear you on that. Okay. Yeah, it's, um, I think that's an interesting one. Tell me three people who don't like you. Uh, <laughs> so with, with the experience from in, in Hoover's after you uh, were leading that company and then moved up to the chair and were operating as the chairman of a public company there, you've also done that as I understand, uh, you were uh, a board member of Whole Foods, which yep. was uh, you know, a tremendous exit to, to Amazon, uh, which is very interesting. But working as a board member there and seeing that company grow, what, what stories or, or experiences do you have from that? Oh, boy. Well, I, I love retailing. You know, that's what I studied uh, since soon after I started subscribing to Fortune, I've really devoted most of my life to it. Um, when I saw Whole Foods, uh, my, uh, my company's first bookstore was in the same shopping center as the second Whole Foods. And the night before opening, I was writing our inventory control software uh, on a PC because that was the best, most innovative way to go at the time. Uh, the night before opening, and John Mackey, the... Um, founder and still CEO of Whole Foods, or co-founder, uh, he was out moving shopping carts on the parking lot. So we go way back. And I think, uh, I mean, he'd had one store doing, I don't know, eight or 10 million a year. And, uh, you know, now they do like 15 billion. Um, so, and I, I served on their board at the time they went public. I was on for like four and a half years. At the time we first began to expand outside of the Austin area and outside of Texas. But I could see, you know, that, that he had found a, a niche of natural organic foods. He's been passionate about that his whole life. He's a fellow who's just obsessed that we don't eat right and I'm going to change that. And that's all that's ever been in his head. He was never, how rich am I going to get or anything like that. Um, I don't think he ever wanted to sell. Um, so I, I knew as I, as I watched them, I knew, A, he and his his colleagues are really bright. They are incredibly dedicated. Their heart's in it. And um, they're learners. They're going to make all these mistakes. I mean, hey, sitting on the board, I could list a few things. I thought, oh, man, you guys, I had worked for a big retailer. He, he never had. He started from ground up, you know, without working for anybody big. 
And so I had all these ideas about how you do planning, how you pick your sites. And I learned that from working for um, two different companies, both became Macy's. And I'm like, wow, these guys are amateurs. But didn't really bug me that much because I said, they're going to learn. They're going to make mistakes and they're going to learn and they're going to do it better the next time and better the next time. And as long as they're learning, as long as they're committed to this um, uh, organic food thing, and uh, as long as that's a good niche, one that has a future, which I believe then and I still believe, uh, it ain't over yet, you know, Walmart and everybody has moved into it. Um, man, the sky's the limit for them. So when people ask me, are you shocked that they became $15 billion? So well, not really shocked. I'm delighted. But uh, no, I, w I would not have said that's impossible when I knew them and, and worked. Uh, still know them, but you know when I was uh, more involved. Interesting. And so, what? Were, how can you quantify uh, Whole Foods when it went public from a uh, market cap and a sales standpoint? Oh, you know, I don't remember the numbers. I'm guessing we are around a hundred million in revenue. Okay, wouldn't be that hard to look up. It was early nineties, ninety two, three, four ish. Um, but, uh, oh, and, and I kept starting companies, so I ended up, when I left the board, selling off all my shares. I have not even bothered to go back and look at what they'd be worth if I'd held on to my uh, board <laughs> options. I, I don't need days like that. I try to have happy days. Of course, of course. <laughs> so, I mean, what would some of those conversations, if a $100 million company going public, going on a growth curve, what did some of the conversations look like with uh, management and the board members there? Oh, boy. Well, we had a mixed group. We had some old friends and relatives. Uh, John Mackey's father and stuff were in there. And then they brought in uh, venture capitalists, but they didn't have control of the company. In uh, Bookstop, the venture capitalist had uh, voting control. Um, so the um, Whole Foods board was an interesting mix. Um, in part because he had friends who had enough stock, John probably had a little more leeway in uh, leading the company. Um, but, you know, we were starting out. The VCs and everybody believed in the mission and the opportunity in natural and organic foods. Um, so there uh, wasn't a lot of conflict. At, at one point, uh, some Eastern venture capitalists started a clone and um, it may have been the same people that were behind Staples, but it was um, experienced supermarket people from the Northeast. And I'm drawing a blank, even on what their chain was called. And I remember rumbles on the board. I don't even know if John even heard these. I may have been off, you know, in a side conversation with the VCs, one of whom I'd known for years and years before we served on that board together. And, well, you know, maybe we should sell out to these guys. They've got, they got deep pockets, and they're, they've already announced they're going to open X number of stores, and at that point, they'll be as big as we are. But, you know, the clones, um, very rarely is their heart in it. Toys R Us, now it's a, you know old dead company, but it had a wonderful run at being one of the most profitable retailers in America. They had like 10 or 12 clones, but what those people running those clones were saying was copy Toys R Us, get rich, copy Toys R Us, get rich. And what Toys R Us was saying, we love toys. We love customers. We love toys. We love customers. And all of those clones failed. A hmm. few of them just went broke. A few of them got bought up by Toys R Us. They were the lucky ones, I guess. This, this man, reminds me. Don't of... underestimate heart. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me in our, um, uh, an email thread that uh, I'm part of with you and some of your contacts there, somebody put that uh, pioneers get bullets and settlers get rich. But <laughs> in this case, you know, there's, there's always the few pioneers who, uh, a Jeff Bezos of the world, they make it. And there's the clones who, who try to be the, the settlers and they just don't work. Oh, uh, it, it gets weird though. I was on a panel at the American Booksellers Convention, a big book expo, they call it. There were 30 people on the, uh, up at the front of the big conference room, the dais or whatever you call it, all of whom had started online bookstores before Amazon. Uh, you know, uh, They were the first one yeah. to do it right. 
You know, I mean, look, look at Google, look at all the InfoSeq and Lycos and AltaVista and all the, uh, it's Yahoo in a sense was a search engine of sorts. Um, so I always say it's not about being first, it's about being best. If you can do both, do it. And there for me, the great example is Federal Express, where the guy dreamed it up, created it. He's now like 68 years old or whatever, still runs it. Um, most valuable and largest airline on earth uh, in revenue. And old Fred Smith, I always make the case, he is America's greatest living active entrepreneur in the United States. Yeah. You, you know, you, you wrote a really good piece about that. And that's, I want to bring that into our discussion about business history, because when you read about what he went through, including wow. a stint in Las Vegas and on and on, I mean, what a story, what history. But that's actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to use that as a segue. I want to quickly speak about something that I know is passionate about you and uh, hear your take. And then we can drive into some of the, the your, one of your major passions being business history. But let's start with the American Business History Center, which is a, a project you're now uh, putting a lot of time into. Can you give us a, a rundown of what that's all about? Yeah, I mean... Why did I figure out the other day? They, in the United States, we issue, I think it's 360,000 or 380,000 new bachelors of business degrees every year. And it's like 170,000 MBAs. Um, there's not an MBA program in the United States that I can find that requires you study business history. I looked at some of the best business schools in America. They don't even, even offer a course in it. So I'm out there. I've spoken in like 30, 40 countries to thousands and thousands, all the way from executives to students. And the knowledge of business history, the learning of the lessons of the past is like zero. I mean, you know, lawyers got to study precedents and Supreme Court cases and all this jazz. Even doctors have the Hippocratic Oath. And I think you really can't understand anything unless you understand where, you, where it comes from the historical basis. How did we get to where we're at? Steve Jobs said, you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. And yet it, business history is a wasteland. And, and I looked around, if you Google business history, you, you get nothing. I mean, you get a book here, a little, little museum here, maybe. Um, there's no um, nexus. There's no, you know, like, Pinterest is for pictures or Amazon is for books or Goodreads is for books. And so the first idea, we've created a, a 501c3 nonprofit, you know, tax deductible donations and all that called the American Business History Center. And our first thing is to create a center on the internet at AmericanBusinessHistory.org where people can go watch videos, read stories, get further uh, other books to read links to other sites, even data sets, spreadsheets full of business history. Um, as much as we can pile on there, we've already got 80 or 90 things on there, something like that. And, um, and, and over time evolved um, podcasts, more videos, more articles, uh, maybe conferences and meetings, hopefully a museum that starts small and grows bigger. But those are all down the road. The first key is really to blast it out on the internet. We've got a newsletter um, and we're just getting rolling. We just kicked it off a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's, well, it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, I've spent a, a fair bit of time uh, having now, well, gotten to know you and gotten to know uh, what you're building there. But for example, you, you mentioned FedEx and Fred Smith, and I just pulled it up. I'm going to see if I can read a quick passage here. Uh, when he's talking about the ebbs and flows of his business, I think it was something along the lines of uh, he could not cover expenses and he took the company's meager funds, the last remaining funds, to Las Vegas. This is Fred Smith of FedEx, the founder there, where he made enough money betting in Las Vegas to keep the doors open. I mean, that, that's just, I mean, that's nuts, but that's the history. His sisters sued him for inve investing their inheritance uh, in the company. And so he was forced to buy their stock out early. <laughs> and I don't know. I haven't found any source for the numbers. Um, maybe I just keep digging. 
But I'm guessing it cost those people billions. Now, hopefully he was generous to them later on. Oh, He's well, really no. a great man if you study him. Find lots of his uh, uh, talks and podcasts and interviews on the web, and they're all, he's just a really cool guy. Regarding history or business history, the, the saying goes that history repeats itself. How can that be applied to business? Oh, I absolutely think, I mean, the way I phrase it is that nothing that matters in business is new. Your techniques are new whether you use the telegraph or billboards to advertise or whether you use Facebook or Google ads or whatever. Yeah, that changes and, and that can change very fast. Marketing techniques, um, you know, even ways of analysis, financial analysis, they probably change more gradually, but you know, you go back a hundred years, nobody talked about price earnings ratios, you know, uh, they were all into dividends. On the other hand, when you read the story of George Eastman, the guy who basically created amateur photography, certainly the first one to make it a success, um, how he thought, what he saw that nobody else saw, everybody said he was nuts, and that's the norm. Anybody's a bold innovator, normally people are going to laugh you out of the room. How did he react to that? How did he deal with adversity? How did he deal with failure in an early stage? Uh, he had a mistake in these photographic plates he was making, and I forget, he tried four or 500 solutions up all night for months and couldn't figure it out, and finally did. He persisted. Um, uh, and, and there's a guy who is a technology genius and really changed the world, and yet he was a brilliant marketer, which is so rare among technology companies and their leaders, because he's sitting there thinking, I got to have a brand name. I want a name that can not be misspelled or mispronounced anywhere in the world in any language, that there's no other word exactly like it. What? And he came up with Kodak. He said the hard sounding K, that's nice. K-O-D-A-K. And that company, gosh, at one point, it was like the third or fourth most valuable company in America. And for a very long run, was just an amazing company in terms of how well it took care of its employees, in terms of its dominant market share. Uh, oh, not quite a monopoly, but he had like a 78, 70 or 80% market share in film. And he achieved that without government support, like most monopolies get. He did it just by having a better product and better distribution and better advertising. So the basic ideas and how, how you learn from customers, how you observe customers, they've been happening over and over, pro probably since like Egyptian and Roman times. I tend to only go back to about the 1700s. You know, I call that recent history, you know, but um no, no, the stories are the same. And, and what we can learn from them and how they can provoke our thinking. And, 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 and there's always a challenge, you know. How do I apply this? How does this relate to this era? I always recommend that students read the works of Peter Drucker, the great management thinker. And I've had a couple of my students, and I have students that are all ages, in their 40s and 50s down to 12 and 15. And, and I'll say, oh, I read it. And it's all about old industrial era. It's about U.S. Steel and General Motors and IBM or whatever. And I, hey, that's on you. It, it's up to you. Poor Mr. Drucker's dead now. He, we can't call him up and say, what, what would he say about uh, Apple and, and Netflix? But it's on you to read his ideas and understand. It's, it's no different than people who study the Bible. You know, different language, different time, different tools, different everything. And yet people get great strength and inspiration from uh, reading it. And it shouldn't be that hard just to reach back to Peter Drucker writing in the 70s and the 80s and learn from that. Yeah, I definitely find uh, Peter Drucker's work very interesting. Sometimes it's, well, interesting to, uh, to think about the, the language he uses. It's, it, that's changed, but a lot of the principles haven't. In fact, I think he's the one who, who defined them. Yep. When you make, you make mention to, you know, going back into the 1800s and the 1700s and looking at uh, our more modern history of, of business, are there any business models that are forgotten? 
Oh, boy. Well, we always have a tendency to think we live in the most important era and everything we see around us is new. So if I can rewind a, a little while back to the 70s when the airlines um, started having their loyalty programs, because in my mind, they were the first uh, big companies to really develop that. And I'm pretty sure American Airlines was really the one that led the way with their Advantage program. You know, it became huge. Everybody counted their miles and you could spend them, give them away, buy more travel. And they really locked in their customers. And But there was a general feeling, oh, wow, this is a huge innovation. Well, if you go back, whatever, 50 or more years before that, there was a thing called S&H Green Stamps. And there were other stamp companies. And, um, you know, you went to a store and every time you bought something, you'd get these stamps and you put them in a little book and you saved them up. You filled a book or two. You got a toaster and they had redemption centers all over the place. And uh, and there were there were others. The um, it was a gold bond stamps. Uh, I think Warren Buffett might have even been involved in a stamp company. Um, and. So, you know, some of these ideas, uh, airlines, you know, you got to go to the airport and all that. And then uh, I was in one country where, no, you just go downtown and they'll pick you up and take you right to the airport in time for your flight. Much more convenient. Well, it turns out that's the way it was done in New York City in the 1930s. They had airline terminals, east side and west side in Manhattan. And that's no where you went to catch your flight. Yep. And, 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 and when the, in the airports, they used, started putting in CNN news on monitors that seemed so innovative. Those old New York airline terminals, they used to run um, newsreels, you know, uh, old movie things in the terminal. So while you're waiting for your bus to come to take you to the airport, you saw the news. So a lot of those techniques, um, the razor and blade thing, uh, uh, King C. Gillette, hey, give them the razor get rich on the blades and we see it over and over again with you know inkjet printers and their ink and uh, lots of other applications of the razor and blade model that, that that is a fascinating one you're starting to see that a lot in digital marketing as well of giving a, a free item away just pay shipping just to get yeah. somebody in on the path and then all of a sudden they're that's where you can see those business models just replicated but perhaps the technique's a little different Sure. And I think if uh, people doing that, if they went back and read one of the books about King C. Gillette, they'd probably get some additional ideas, you know, because he was uh, one very interesting character. Interesting. That, that's probably worth a read. I, um, I read through Shoe Dog, which is the, the Phil Knight book. Oh, yeah. Uh, and really enjoyable book. You could, you could see how he played on that razor's edge of... Uh, I mean, he was the equivalent of an extreme athlete, of a, of a professional athlete, but in business. And what he references and talks about in the, the work he was doing in the, in the 70s and 80s and building the company up, the tactics are, are, or the, um, the strategies are no different, just that the tactics are changing over time. But it was really interesting because it made me think, wow, there's not a lot we're doing that's new. Yep. It's just... You're just doing it with different tools, effectively. And the other thing that I'd mention is while I find all these people with no knowledge of business history, uh, some of the greats uh, have it. You know, Bill Gates at one point said, if you're only going to read one book about business, read My Years with General Motors by Alfred P. Sloan, who I, I view Sloan as the greatest manager who ever lived. And he really changed global business. And he, and he wrote the whole story. He was like in his... 90s or whatever when he wrote it in the 1960s but he's the guy that built General Motors which was for decades the greatest company on earth by almost any measure and um, man that, everybody should read that book Bill Gates is also really big on a book called Business Adventures by John Brooks the book was like uh, out of print or hard to find and the prices shot up once he said oh I love that book now they got it back in print uh, Warren Buffett we know he studied Graham and Dodd you know Benjamin Graham and intelligent investors. So some of the really smart people do know enough, but we need to get that word out to more people. I gotcha. Where we're at in the markets now and looking, I mean, this is the, you know, the longest prolonged bull run we've seen in history, as I understand. What do we have to learn about this? What should we, what, what are your takes on it? 
Uh, you know, I, I'm afraid I can't add much there. I'm with J.P. Morgan. The market fluctuates, you know, and, and with Warren Buffett, who said, no way on earth will he predict where that market's going to be in a month or even a year. Uh, all he's confident in is that it's going to be higher in 10 years or 15 or whatever. And mm. I share that philosophy, you know. Um, there are just too many variables, uh, too many politicians, and you know, too much media. And people like to get freaked out. They seem to enjoy it at times. And then they also love the rush of, oh, the world's taken off. And, uh, you know, this stock's going to triple in three months. I mean, you watch TV ads, you know. And I was watching the other night on late night TV on a channel that has a lot of investors watching it. And the ads almost alternate between the market's going to crash, biggest crash ever, all everything's pointing to it, you know, and then the next ad is, oh, this is an unprecedented opportunity to buy into the market. And lots of people make a lot of money. Uh, probably the smartest people are not talking, <laughs> you know, maybe. Um, no, I, I, I believe long term, um, you know, uh, hang in there. Uh, time it in, you know, average down, average up, uh, whatever. But uh, I wouldn't hesitate. And I, I've actually, even in something like retailing, I've in general found it much easier to predict five to 10 years into the future than to predict six to 12 months into the future. And you that's what the statisticians would call noise. Interesting. And, yeah. No, no, it's easier to see out further. When, if you, when you're looking at big trends, the things that matter, demographics, uh, population shifts, age structure shifts, total demand for automobiles or housing. You've got to look at that long line, the long-term trends. I mean, you go on the internet, you try to find charts that show five-year change, 10-year change, and 50-year change. It's very hard. I've actually, I haven't promoted it, but a friend and I have created a little site called changethroughtime.com. And all we do is add long-term charts and, and information. It's very hard to find. Everybody is so focused on how am I doing against last month, last quarter, last year. And there's very limited information in that. Um, there's much more information in those long-term. And, and they're more predictable. Stuff like demographics. We know how many 65-year-olds will live in America in 50 years pretty much to the penny much more accurately than we know where the Dow Jones or S&P averages will be in six months. I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, from that, I'm taking keep a long-term perspective. At least add it in. For me, a big key is these big issues, thinking about history, uh, looking at long-term trends. All you have to do is give them a sliver of your attention because most people are giving them zero percent. They are so heads down, today's problems, today's to-do list, this month's goals. And hey, I've spent my life in business and I know that's overwhelming. All of our to-do lists are overflowing. But the, most people, the, the long-term big picture stuff gets 0%. All you have to do is give it 2%. Make sure and read uh, the Wall Street Journal a half hour every day. Make sure and look at the Economist magazine and really devour it every Sunday afternoon. Um, take, take that time. Uh, Bill Gates, he used to have, when he was still working, running the company, not that he isn't still working as a great philanthropist, but, you know, he took Think Week. Every year he took one week and went off in the, wo went off in the woods and read books. And they weren't all business books. They were about sociology, human trends, long-term books on technology. A friend of mine helped pick the books that he would go read. And um, John Mackey at Whole Foods, uh, uh, at least for years, he read an hour or two every morning before he went to work. And he wasn't reading business bestsellers. He was looking at big picture things. Hmm. Hmm. Avoiding the, uh, avoiding the hype, but looking big picture. Yeah. And, and you know, hey, I, 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 you know, I live with 57,000 books. And <laughs> that's I, another thing. Yeah. You know, okay. That's way too many. But uh, hey, there aren't many bestsellers here. And I don't buy many bestsellers. And a lot of my favorite books were published before 1970 or even 1950. What I'd like to do is bring this in, and maybe tap into a bit of advice about small cap CEOs and, and 
CEOs and leadership teams who are building building companies that you know don't hit the radar compared to a, a Nasdaq or an S and P company. How should they help? Or what would be good advice for them operating as a public company specifically? Well, you know, peop- uh, companies used to go public when they were much smaller, and then with um, uh, Sarbanes Oxley, Sarbox, it became harder, more complex, more expensive. Uh, and so the bar became higher. You, generally, it was thought you had to be bigger. You know, there used to be public companies in the 60s that did 10 million a year and 15 million a year. Even if you adjust for inflation, wouldn't be that big. Because going public does bring, you know, and, and actually the U.S. SEC is just now lightening requirements uh, for public companies if they're below, I think it's below 100 million in revenue or something like that. They're saying, well, you don't have to do quite as much reporting or, uh, uh, you don't have to have quite the same auditing standards. But uh, it, it's taken on a lot to go public. I would be cautious about it. You know, again, the real thing is valuing, um, uh, building value in the company. And the, the other thing, too, is when you talk about being under the radar, because you can be under the radar because of size, but you can also be under the radar in terms of your industry. You know, somebody that's making industrial equipment or machine tools or plastic bottles or whatever, you know, there's no sex appeal and everything. But with the rise of private equity, uh, a lot of those people are, you know, because people, good business thinkers understand, wow, there's, there's money there. And it's a good thing that not everybody wants to be in this. It's a good thing this is not the no, next social media wonder kind, you know, and um, that nobody's heard of this industry, that um, we're making software to help run used car lots, you know, and we're cleaning up and who cares that there's no sex appeal in it or we're collecting garbage, you know, America created a few billionaires that way, I think. Mm. So, um, you know, this this just popped into mind and I'm sure you could weigh in on it. Uh, I talk with a lot of people and, uh, uh, like to hear their thoughts and their debates on the differences between Accessor being a public company and accessing, uh, well, I mean, this is more of a Canadian uh, and Australian uh, financing way, but accessing early stage public venture capital and being an early stage public company versus uh, venture capital and uh, accessing private venture capital. Do you have any thoughts on that? Would you like to weigh in on that? Well, a gut reaction is I actually, one of my companies, it, it later failed for different reasons, but I actually did uh, crowdfunded equity. I raised, what, $6 million, 600 investors at $10,000 each, and they weren't accredited. You know, in the U.S., the rule is you've got to be a millionaire or have a high income, be accredited. And if you're not that, you're not, private companies have trouble raising money from people who aren't accredited. So I leaped all kind, through all kinds of hoops, got a broker's license. It was a Texas-only intrastate um, uh, offering. I couldn't sell to people outside of Texas. And it took a lot of work, and I raised millions. Um, now, with Regulation A and Regulation A Plus in the U.S. that the SEC has created, it's um, easier to do that. So I think we're seeing a shift. Um, well, I tell you one thing that's very parallel is, and a lot of people push back to me on this, say, oh, you got to be crazy. Uh, I always said it's better to have lots of small investors than a few big investors. Because everybody thinks, oh, I'll, I got, I need a half million dollars for my startup. I'll go find a person with a half million. Well, then you got a boss, you know, uh, having passive investors with nobody in voting control, or maybe you, but. Uh, there's a lot of appeal to that. So I, I do need to learn more about uh, the system you described um, there and in Australia. Uh, in general, that's very interesting. The other side thing, though, I'd look at is look back to how long that system's been in place and look back at the early companies and see how they've turned out. Because certainly in the United States, there's companies that have gone public when they were little and they sell for under a dollar a share, and you never hear from them. You know, they just stay down there in that swamp forever and disappear, or somebody buys them just to have a corporate charter or, you know. So um, 
if you can point me to companies that became big and prospered and later migrated to the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange or whatever, that that would be uh, worth worth looking at. Uh, yeah. I, I you make a good point there that you'd rather have many more smaller shareholders than a few large ones. Yeah, uh, it's more and, paperwork, but yeah. boy, it can be less. It can be less headaches. I mean, all it takes is one upset shareholder to make your life difficult. But if they have a lot of stock, they can do something about it. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Much, they can just scream. That sounds awful because I love my shareholders and I felt a commitment to, you know, help make them rich. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's reality. Well, great. Gary, I'm, I'm looking at time here and I want to be respectful for, uh, for yours for sure. Is there any final thoughts you'd like to share, whether it be uh, advice for for yeah, young companies or well, any CEO or management team in that base or uh, any points on, on the passion projects that you have now? You know, I think we've covered uh, so many points here. I guess the, the one thing I'm always uh, preaching is always be learning, always be listening, always, always be talking to your customers, whatever it takes. In, in many ways, it's harder in the digital age. When I had bricks and mortar stores, I could go out on the selling floor. I could interview my customers. I could watch them. I could listen to them. As we moved into digital businesses, it uh, becomes harder and harder. You know, they send out all these uh, surveys. Well, how did you like the hotel last night? And how did you like your airplane flight? And a lot of times the surveys are badly constructed or kind of insulting, like, well, they just asked me if I used the business center. I said, no. Why are they asking me again? You know? And I know at Hoover's, actually, after both my friend and I run it, our third CEO, um, he would every, I believe, every Friday afternoon, he'd call up like 10 customers. And the sales force would give him a list. And they were uh, all the way from a, a single home office person, paying back then $100 a year or whatever, all the way up to a big corporate client that might be paying 100000 a year uh, for the whole Hoover's services. And, you know, pick up the phone and call him. A friend of mine joked as a huge book consumer. He said, you know, Jeff Bezos should call you up uh, uh, every six months. And I laughed. I, oh, yeah. But, you know, after I thought about it, I said, you know, he's right. Because <laughs> I could write a book about all the things Amazon does wrong in books. you know, <laughs> And that they could improve, make my life better. And how do you, how do, you do that? We, we get so cocooned. You know, and that these big companies, the executives travel around in their private jets, so they don't even meet strangers in first class on an airliner, you know, and they're caught up in their meetings, you know, people, they want, want to make speeches and do interviews, and I know how incredibly busy their lives are, but man, you know, as Sam Walton, one of my heroes said, the only person that can fire Walmart is our customer, and Another one of his great quotes was, if you're ever confused and don't know what to do, go to the stores. The customers have all the answers. Um, and, and that's one reason. An amazing amount of his DNA is still in, his, in that company. And today, Walmart is, by quite a margin, the largest business enterprise on earth. Last year, they crossed $500 billion in revenue. Nobody that's far bigger than ExxonMobil and Royal Dutch Shell, who I think are the runners-up. Um, his focus. I always say, having grown up with General Motors, I, I say Walmart has less hubris and arrogance at five hundred billion in sales than General Motors had at five, because General Motors thought they knew everything, knew all the answers, they could ignore everybody, and it was sad. It was sad. Wow, coming back now. Well, very interesting points, and I think that's. Uh perhaps easily forgotten, but very valuable advice. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time. Oh, it's just been great. And yeah. uh, be great if people drop by AmericanBusinessHistory.org. Uh, just come see the site, see what you think, and, uh, to, and share it with your friends. Share it with young people. Get them to study history so they can, the only way they're going to know way, where they're going is by having some idea of where we've come from. Yeah, it's... I, as a, as a very fair plug, I've uh, certainly enjoyed it and uh, have it up on my browser. It's, it's been um, 
uh, it's informative and worthwhile taking a look. So I'll put the uh, link in the show notes. And uh, Gary, once again, thank you very much. Thank you, Corey. It's just been great fun. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.